News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here with Professor Christina Greer. Hey, Chrissy. Hey, Harry. So in a bit, you're going to be hearing from Assemblyman Eddie Gibbs, just back from Albany in the latest Big Ugly, uh, in a conversation with Katie Honan and me about his life before politics, including his street wife, years of incarceration, and then an entertainment career sharing the stage with the likes of the Jungle Brothers Mace and departed legends Biggie Smalls and Big L. But meantime, Chrissy Greer, I got two things here. First, I see that former Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin is now employing the same lawyer who helped get Bill de Blasio off the hook for campaign fund shenanigans and using the same defense, which boils down to if uh, he didn't pocket money, but rather used it for his political benefit, that there's no crime. Uh, Reminder there that uh, Bill de Blasio still owes his lawyer, uh, Mr. Burke, something like $350,000 that he does not seem to have repaid or to have any way to repay. So that's not quite pocketing money, but it's an interesting footnote there at the other end. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, Politico New York has a hell of a story from Joe Anuda and Sally Goldenberg reporting that, and they sourced this to five people with knowledge of the offer. The Adams administration tried to hire Assemblyman Jeffrey Aubrey, who was not an Adams supporter, he'd back Maya Wiley from mayor as his new probation commissioner. Now, City Hall emphatically denies this report, but uh, the upshot, if this happened, is that it would have opened up a path for former NYPD officer, state lawmaker, and longtime Adams friend Hiram Montserrat to make his long-awaited or long-attempted return to Albany after his expulsion for brutally beating his girlfriend, as captured on video, And subsequent conviction for, speaking of campaign fund stuff, kicking $300,000 when he was a city councilman to a community group that in return kicked 100000 of it back to him to help back his state senate run. Adams has talked a lot about believing in redemption and second chances. And notably, it seemed to offer those second chances to several men accused or convicted of mistreating women, including two recent public meals with former Governor Andrew Cuomo. Uh, a call to his mayoral rival at the time, Scott Stringer, expressing his sympathies after two women said Stringer had mistreated them decades earlier, and finding a six-figure position for a former Patterson aide uh, who was accused of uh, choking his partner and then worked for Adams in Brooklyn when he was borough president uh, and, and now at City Hall. So while City Hall has flatly denied Politico's reporting, they've stood by it, and Adams has unquestionably maintained close ties with Montserrat for nearly a decade after he was thrown out of the legislature, a move Adams was just one of eight lawmakers to oppose at the time, until finally making some effort to cut ties during his campaign last year. So, Chrissy, my my question for you, you tell me if this is unfair, is why does New York politics seem so damn much like Breaking Bad or one of those shows a lot of the time where it's it's sort of the, the same characters and the same sort of bad acts again and again and again? Right. I mean, you know, I always jokingly say we've got a cesspool of degenerates, but our record of folks going to prison in Albany or resigning for some sort of financial scandal or sexual scandal uh, is a, it seems like a disproportionate number. I mean, maybe I'll pull up some data 
<laughs> from the state houses across all 50 states. But something's amiss when we have two back-to-back -back governors who have had to resign, an attorney general. This doesn't seem to be a partisan issue. You know, we've had Republicans sharing, you know, the same prison facilities with Democrats and playing cards every Thursday with Ja Rule, you know, when we had Hevesy, Bruno, and Silver, I believe, all together. I mean, this is just, it's embarrassing. And as someone who has the privilege and the honor of teaching the youth of America, trying to get them inspired to participate in the political process, trying to get them inspired to run for office, especially as I stress how important local and state-level government positions are, you know, for the functioning of our democracy, then they look at the news and say, well, Professor Greer, it seems like all these people are grifters and rapists. And I'm like, oh. you know, when we think about Albany, and, and I was told a very long time ago when I was in my early 20s that Albany is a town of old men and young women. And if I were to go there, I needed to be very careful. Uh, and when I went there, I was very careful because it was a lot of shenanigans, mayhem, and nonsense going on uh, in those mountains. So for me, it's just, it's a little disheartening because I'm trying to get people really interested in running for state legislature and state senate uh, at some point in their careers. And each week, it seems as though I'm, I'm getting farther and farther away from inspiring people to want to ever go into state level politics. So funny thing here, one of those convicted Republicans is Ed Mangano, the former Nassau County executive. It's like the mayor of Nassau County, more or less who took uh, bribes from this restaurateur, uh, Harandara Singh, who, by the way, was one of the people who was also convicted of bribing Bill de Blasio. The reason that Mangano just got sentenced to 12 years and his wife Linda got sentenced to 15 months and Bill de Blasio was not even charged is because de Blasio did not pocket benefits, but use them for his political operation. Whereas Mangano was, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you got to watch, you got new hardwood floors for his home, uh, a, a, an expensive vibrating chair uh, to, uh, to go in his home and a no-show job for his wife. Mm. So, so I do think we're, we're reaching a point. I've actually talked with a couple of prosecutors of this recently and federal prosecutors who, you know, are, are annoyed that they're always the ones bringing these cases and that our local elected prosecutors, maybe for that reason, very rarely seem to be interested, uh, particularly in the bigger players. Um, that, that, that if you're not sloppy or stupid, it's very hard to get charged. Um, I also suspect that if Benjamin's success is successful here, the the uh the roadmap for what you can do in terms of uh you know kicking money to people taking uh and then taking benefits in exchange but scrupulously not using those for things that could be marked as, as personal but for your benefit and of course having these offices comes with all sorts of personal benefits you right. have a staff that does stuff for you you have a driver you know people people around you getting up and jumping but like th th this is a roadmap for 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 more of the same in a way that seems very frustrating and worse. Now you have Andrew Cuomo making more noises about a uh, comeback in this Sit insane down. loop where, where, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Lieutenant governor who's governor because right. of his very bad behavior can't pick a Lieutenant governor competently enough to sort of, sort of hold on to her, her own credibility. It, it's, uh, 
Well, I think, you know, that's what I talked to with my students about it. It's like, you know, Brian Benjamin is lieutenant governor only because Andrew Cuomo had to resign for sexual impropriety and Kathy Hochul moves into the governor's position and appoints him. I mean, there are a few things. So, one, we know that politicians all do a varying level of quid pro quo. I mean, that's, that is the whole, the whole point, right? And, you know, it, it gets to be that blurry line of constituent services. Who was the politician before who was giving out, um, uh, like, Amazon gift cards? Was that Ruben Diaz Sr.? Um, to constituents. And it was like, well, listen, people in my district are poor. And so, but it was like, you're giving out gift cards during election season. I get that you're trying to help them buy groceries, but it seems a little fuzzy, right? And we, we've we seen this time and time again with organizations and elected officials. There are a few things. One, you know, if I'm Brian Benjamin, yeah, I would hire de Blasio's lawyers because de Blasio didn't see a day in jail or prison. So why not? The same way, you know, Justin Fairfax in Virginia hired uh, Kavanaugh's, Justice Kavanaugh's lawyers, right? It's like, if you're accused of sexual misconduct, hire the law firm that got the other person off of those charges. I do think, you know, from a racial perspective, I always tell black politicians and politicians of color, it's like, listen, you also know you can't do what white boys do. So I am always curious because it seems as though we have a disproportionate number of, you know, black and Latinx politicians that end up on the other side of the V in, you know, the United States versus X. Um, Whether or not that's a coincidence or if these are just sort of some deep-seated racial biases that we have when we're looking extra closely at Black and Latinx and Asian politicians. We saw this with John Liu, you know, in sort of his straw donations. I was like, are you really the only mayoral candidate that has some sort of questionable donations? But it had to do with this larger, I I argued, latent racist critique of John Liu about, you know, sneaky financial dealings. And it was problematic. Now, if you're a controller, make sure your money's tight. That's John Liu's issue. But I did think that targeting John Liu was was something that had a racial element to it. And I and think his we see treasurer it, went to prison. And his he, young 24-year-old yep, treasurer. Yep, yep. And he, he, he again, w- w- was not charged. I think he feels really badly about that. Right. Um, but, but we do seem to have these wackadoo laws where, where who's getting charged for what crimes? Like the bribers going to prison? Right. And, and and the person on the other end is is not charged, or, or the treasurer take it takes the fall. It's, and, and that is legally correct. Like something just seems wrong. Something's off. Um, but we know that we need a full overhaul of our system. I think that there's also you know the critique of now we have Damian Williams, who's the head of the SDNY, who's bringing these charges. But like, let's also be clear: before Damian got to the office, the office was looking into Brian Benjamin. So there, yes, I know that there's a critique of like black on black, you know, prosecutor versus taking down, you know, lieutenant governor. But we know that that office has been in the works. You don't get a scalp like the lieutenant governor doing this on the fly. This isn't something where it's like, oh, I did two weeks worth of research. Let me see if I can take down a lieutenant governor. It's still a lieutenant governor. So, but we do also know that it is a scalp. Like it is still a prize, right? When you have, when you have people who either have to resign or you know, you change the course of history based on some sort of prosecution. So I think we're going to see how it shakes out. We'll see if de Blasio's lawyers can do for Benjamin what they were able to do for de Blasio. But as I said, you know, time and time again, Harry, when we saw de Blasio in the latter half of his first term, I was always like, if this were a black mayor, this man would be under the jail. Like for some reason, de Blasio was Teflon time and time again when it came to these, these, you know, charges against him. And we know that he was in some really sort of tight binds, but also he didn't have any primary challengers. 
even whilst he was going through this. So I, I think that for me, there was a huge racial and gender component to that discussion of de Blasio. And I still think that there's a somewhat, somewhat, not fully, but somewhat of a racial conversation when it comes to Brian Benjamin and the situation he finds himself in. I, I think Eric Adams is going to be a very interesting test case Ooh, of this. Child. And as, uh, as he's saying, he'll, he'll release something related to his taxes at some point between now and October. I'm like, my friend, first off, you, you, you wear very nice suits. You flew to Puerto Rico and back with the crypto billionaire on his private plane and said you paid for that yourself. You said this, uh, this father of, uh, of this kid who died in New York, who you talked about publicly after he was upset about how you talked about him. You said you flew him to New York. I mean, these things aren't cheap. Obviously, we had the questions previously with Adam's taxes about wh wh where he's living. But right. like what impact politically and legally these things have with him, I think is going to be potentially Huge. really well, interesting I mean, to see. But I always said, Harry, my issue with one of my issues with Eric Adams, um, you know, and I, I have a lot of respect for him in certain things. And I have a lot of disdain for some of some of his other policies. But I always felt like there was a strain of Trump and Cuomo in Eric Adams that made me very uncomfortable. And this is one of the strains. We didn't see the president's taxes the entire four years. We now know his son-in-law is making $2 billion from the Saudis. And so Eric Adams, because you roll with a certain element, as my grandmother would say, um, that and some of that element makes me somewhat uncomfortable because these are people who lean on the line of legality. I would like for you to do what other people have done. If there's nothing to see, then show me, right? Show me the taxes. Like if there's nothing really going on, then that's fine. But this idea that you can kind of do this Trumpian, like I'll get them to you. And then as you say, my friend, <laughs> we are now in April, right? I would like to question asked, question answered. I think that's also gonna be interesting. Eric Adams, do you make this a bigger story? Because also you were a black man, right? And you were only the second black mayor of New York City. Do you make this a larger story because you refuse to show your taxes? I don't know. I mean, the longer we have to keep asking, that's when journalists are like, well, is there something that I should see that you don't want me to see if I ask you time and time again and you refuse to show? So I, I think closing question here, and it's a big thought one. I'm going to read just a little bit from this Politico article. Uh, the critics who say he's unfit for office, and Montserrat's already running, right? Whether whether the seat, even without the seat open up for him, he ran once already against the same guy, lost by 30 points, but he just, he keeps going and going. He argues, Montserrat, that anybody who supports the state Queen Slate Act uh, proposed by Hochul in the most recent uh, budget, and that would automatically clear all conviction records, and the City Council's Fair Chance Act passed in 2015, which bars employers from asking job applicants about their criminal history, should offer him the same opportunity to start fresh. Quote, you can't say all that in one breath and then say, but not for this specific guy, he said. So what do you make of that, Chrissy? Is that, is that, is that fair? Uh, you know, and, and this is an era of second chances. We're seeing this with uh, the slow rollout of legal weed here. We're seeing this with reforms at the city and state level. Um, and, and should the standard be the same for public servants and elected officials as for everyone else? Or should it be a higher bar? Yeah, Harry, I think that there needs to be a higher bar for elected officials. I believe in second chances. You know, I believe that if you did something in your teens and 20s, yeah, you need to second, depending on what it is, but especially when it comes to, say, marijuana, right? I believe that sometimes people as adults need second chances. None of us are perfect. However, 
I draw the line when I think about watching that video that first time when I saw Hiram Montserrat hit his girlfriend and drag her across that floor. That to me is by her hair. By her hair. I mean, we're we're on some Ray Rice level stuff. And so whatever therapy he may or may not have gotten, whatever apologies he's given her and her family, that's between them. But I do think that there should be some sort of punishment and penalty where that type of behavior is not tolerated. And so, yes, there are second chances. I do believe when people serve their time, they are, you know, emancipated and back in society and all these things and you should have the franchise. I believe that even, you know, in cases of, of murder and, you know, drug usage and selling drugs, all that stuff. I do think that you should get the franchise. That does not necessarily mean that you should be able to represent communities. Um, it is an honor and a privilege to serve as a public servant. And I think that that behavior had shows beyond egregious judgment, lack thereof, I would say. And so, no, no, not in that, not in that realm. And no should, 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 there. should there be some sort of uh law here or standard, or finally, does this come down to what legislators decide with throwing someone like Montserrat out and then what voters decide about whether or not to put him back in? Yeah. Well, I mean, because this is where it gets sticky and tricky, right? Because yeah. let's be clear, there could be someone somewhere down the line that is accused of something that maybe they did not do. So if the law says that they can never run for office again, then that is not fair. I, I get that. I don't know if that's a question that we pose to the body where they, they get to decide whether or not someone can run again, or do we leave it up to the voters? The voters sometimes make great choices and work on their best behalf, and sometimes they don't. Um, and then sometimes we've seen, you know, especially in the case of Montserrat, that voters are like, listen, that's his personal business. He was a great legislator for me, so he said he was sorry, and, and I'm willing to give him a second chance. I actually genuinely don't know, Harry, um, whether or not it should be a law because if that's the case, we've seen time and time again when we've had laws that say like, oh, if you were convicted of X, then you could never run again. And people have re rehabilitated themselves and want to be productive members of society. Um, so, but I, I do get nervous when we leave it to a case by case basis because someone like Iron Montserrat still has a lot of supporters. When he ran last time, he almost won. I mean, he, you know, it wasn't like he was blown out of the water. I mean, his constituents really do love and appreciate him by and large Ooh, here we are and that is a uh, perfect note to transition from a uh, politician who went to prison uh to somebody whose past took them from prison to politics let's jump right in stop putting because i might get vexed and i'm gonna run up on y'all and slice your necks with the machete pockets heavy sling more cane to eddie i represent uno trash nueve big welcome to assemblyman eddie gibbs uh who represents alberio in the 68th assembly district uh where he was raised in public housing and by a single mom um we're gonna have to start in the past here i think if i'm not mistaken you're 53 years old and we're gonna start when you were 17 and you ended up turning yourself into the police after uh killing a guy who just come out of prison who tried to rob you a lot of lawmakers in albany end up going to prison 
but you seem to have flipped that script and, and then made some stops in between that, that we'd love to know more about. So there's a lot to go through there. Um, and I'm hoping you can start by just saying a bit about your life on the streets as, as, as a young man, or in fact, a teenager, and then how you ended up at Rikers for 17 months uh, before taking a plea bargain on the advice of your public defender that resulted in four and a half years in various prisons upstate. And how you spent that time, including getting your associate's degree in business in the course of that. Yeah, so, yeah, thanks for the question. Like, so, you know, born and raised, mom's a single parent, four additional uh, siblings, three boys, two girls. Moms couldn't keep up with all of us. My older brother and I, we took to the streets early, started doing what our friends were doing, whether it was hustling, selling marijuana, cocaine, you name it. Anything to put a peanut butter jelly back into the apartment, we did it. We hustled and um, got in trouble in the early age. You know, uh, a lot of adults were, you know, targeting me, robbing me and such. And it happened that one time, you know, a young man came home from prison, as you mentioned. And, you know, he, uh, he robbed me, stabbed me in the leg, pushed himself into an apartment. And, you know, we defend, I defended myself. And, you know, turned myself in right away afterwards. And, you know, 17 months later, found myself accepting a plea bargain uh, through the advice of my uh, legal aid attorney. Wasn't too familiar with, uh, you know, the uh, justification laws back then. Didn't know that, you know, my action was totally justified. Uh, I just took the uh, plea bargain because I had 17 months in and I wanted to get out of prison. And when you have a judge and a district attorney and a district attorney uh, help assistant and a legal aid telling you all at the same time, hey, we think this is the best deal, it's best for you, and you kind of believe it. And so, you know, they said three to nine years with 17 months in, you think you're coming home. Hey, next year I'll be home. So when they when they initially gave me the plea bargain, um, and I remember it like it was yesterday, uh, you know, uh, justice... Judge Gallagher, he pulled me into the uh, into his chambers with the district attorney and my legal aid, and he said, "Hey, look, man, understand the circumstances of your case, but three years is really a good deal. I've had seventeen months in on Rikers Island. I wanted to just get out of there. I wanted to get back home to my family. So I told him I would accept the uh, plea bargain of three to nine, and uh, he assured me that he would write a letter. The judge assured me that he would write a letter to the parole board stating that you know I should get a break." Uh, however, I don't think the parole board received that letter because during my third year in front of the parole board, they hit me with an additional 15 to 16 months. So, you know, um, I wind up doing four and a half out of the three to nine. And then from there, you end up going upstate and, and from jail to prison. 17 months, by the way, is a long time ahead of a trial, obviously. It's a long time to sit on Rikers Island and, you know, and you sitting there, you know, and you're waiting and then we go back to court. They give you these additional long adjournments. I mean, my adjournments was like two, three months per case. Anytime I went to the front of the judge, they would adjourn it for two months, three months. And I'm like, God. And then, you know, we had a few hearings. And, you know, after the third appearance, the, the attorney said, hey, look, man, they offered you three years. You got 17. And if you do the math, you'd be home in another year and change. And I thought just that. So I took it. But at the end of the day, you know, it was a learning process because when I accepted the plea bargain, they shipped me immediately right upstate to Elmira Correctional Facility. Um, 
that was like the reception in prison. Um, I went to Elmira for a few months and my classification dropped. So they beached me off to Cayuga Correctional Facility. Now, Cayuga was a brand new prison. They just built Cayuga. It was fresh. I mean, it was so fresh that they was giving out um, metal forks, spoons, and knives. And I remember the first night we get there, it was a bunch of us, about 100 so many inmates, and we all got there, and we all went to the mess hall. We seen these forks, spoons, metal. And that night, they had a whole search of the whole prison. They must have called in other guards from other prisons because they shut the prison down because they were trying to recover all these forks and knives that was missing from the first day of mess hall. <laughs> so, you know, you, you got these inmates going to this kitchen with metal forks and knives, you know, and this prison is brand new. They must have missed about 200 knives because people were taking them and, you know. So, you know, but I got to Cayuga and I knew immediately that I had to catch up and learn. And so I immediately joined into a program. I, I joined into a GED program. I scored the highest in the state. And uh, my civilian teacher, you know, Bill Dolan, he encouraged me to continue on with college. And at the time, uh, Cayuga Community College was also based in Cayuga Community Prison. So they had a little thing going where, you know, we all joined the program. We went to Cayuga Community and in a year and a half, I received my associate's degree in business administration. So, you know, I was excited, you know, because I, I didn't realize I was so smart. You know, I, I passed my GED with high numbers. I passed my uh, associate's degree. I said, wow, I must be a smart kid somewhere in here. <laughs> uh, when you were at Rikers, I'm just curious, did, did you have a, did you have bail or, 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 or how you ended up there for, for 17 months before taking this deal? Well, I turned myself in. So, you know, after it happened, uh, my mom's, of course, she was awakened by the noise and, you know, I told her what happened. And she was like, come on, let's go down to the precinct. We turned ourselves in. I stayed about six hours in the precinct. And um, they processed me. The next thing you know, I was at the Tombs in Manhattan Detention Center downtown until they officially charged me. And once they charged me, they shipped me off right to Rikers. And for 17 months, it's been like a gladiator school. Back then, 87, 88, 89, early 90s, Rikers Islands was like a gladiator school. And But, you know, through the grace of God, I survived it unscathed. It's remarkable how the same headlines and stories about Rikers, gladiator schools and fight clubs and all that just continue decade after a decade. I, I did want to ask, though, when you got out, uh, you know, I know you, you've talked about how you were performing comedy under the stage name. Good buddy. And also <laughs> doing some rapping uh, at shows and in ciphers with some legends, including Jungle Brothers. Uh, Mace, I believe, um, and The Departed, Biggie Smalls, and Lamont Coleman, better known as Big L, whose brother Leroy, I believe, you'd been locked up with. And then Big L introduced you to the Digging in the Crates crew. Can, can you take us through what you were doing as a performer and working toward it at that point, and also your recollection of the icons you got to know in the course of that? Harry, that's a good question, right? So, yeah, I was locked up with Leroy Fernandez, who happened to be Big L's brother. Well, Big L's adopted brother. Leroy Mom's adopted Big L, and, you know, that's how they became related. Uh, so we were in uh, Cayuga and Mid-State together. I knew Leroy prior to going to prison, so we just, when we seen each other in prison, we just 
You know, it was like good friends meeting each other again. So throughout two years of staying together, you know, we we kept in touch. And I went home. He's like, hey, my brother's Big L, by the way. You know, he's a rapper. He's doing all these things, you know, come hang out with us, you know, come to some parties and listen to his music. And, you know, I went there and, of course, you know, I shared some lyrics with L, put some other stuff in his little verses, and I spit a few bars with him. And so we we became tight friends. I traveled with him a lot. Uh, when he joined uh, Digging in Crates with Fat Joe and all the rest of the guys, you know, we it was like a, it was like a family reunion. Uh, when I first went there, he was like, you know, Fat Joe wasn't Joey Crack back then, you know. Fat Joe was just the big Fat Joe, right? He wasn't this millionaire, <laughs> gold chain wearing, Lamborghini driving guy back then. Everybody was struggling. And, you know, but in Digging and Crates, it was a family affair. And I seen that L was really uh, loved and respected in the group. And so, you know, when we all hung out, you know, we listened to music, we listened to each other's demos. Uh, we, we smoked some weed. L didn't smoke, but, you know, other people smoked some weed. We had some drinks. And it was just a hangout with uh, Digging in the Crates. All, all the other groups, you know, I met through uh, cool DJ Red Alert. Now, DJ Red Alert is this icon, uh, uh, legend. He's the legend, right? Yeah. You can't talk about hip-hop and not talk about DJ Red Alert. And he's a good friend of mine. And I travel all over with Red from London to China to you name it. We've traveled together, Amsterdam, everywhere. So with Red and, you know, him being the popular DJ that he is, you know, I've met many, many, many rappers through him. You know, I'm talking Jay-Z, LL Cool J, Nas, uh, uh, Big, uh, well, Big, I met Biggie through Red Alert, but I hung with Biggie through Big L. So Red Alert introduced me to uh, Biggie Smalls first. And then uh, when Biggie Smalls uh, sent Big L an invite to be in one of his video shoots, we all drove out to Brooklyn, and that's when I started interacting with Biggie Smalls at his Biggie at his uh, video shoot. Now, Big L and I, you know, we already knew the game. Biggie was hot. Big L had the verses, so he was always friendly with Biggie Smalls, and and that's why we always was received with love when we went to Brooklyn. Um, Little Caesar, Biggie's guys, my Little Caesar is still my guy to this day. Every time we see each other, it's like you know, two friends and like never been pulled apart. Um, so I was blessed to be around DJ Red Alert and be around Big L to know all these good ass celebrities that we are talking about today. And in some moment, I guess around the same time, you were uh, also driving for I guess a, another legend of his, of his own right, Murray Richmond, who was the defense attorney who represented Jay Z and Ian Max at various points, as well as several prominent mafia families. Yeah, so that's what put me closer to the rappers, right? So. Yeah. When we talk about Murray Richmond and as his driver, you know, right, Murray did represent right, rappers, mobsters, and politicians. Uh, and the rappers, you know, I was able to meet uh, through Murray. I met uh, DMX, became best friends because of DMX. I mean, Murray represented DMX like 18 times. <laughs> like yeah. every time DMX got in trouble, Murray was there. And I would have to go drive and pick him up, pick up X, bring him to court and such. So DMX became, and I became good friends through Murray. Uh, I met Jay-Z finally through Murray. Um, in passing, Jay-Z and I always talked. We took pictures, was cordial. But in the office setting, uh, in his attorney's office setting, you know, I really met him there. Same thing with D.L. Hewley and all the other celebrities that uh, um, 
he represented. Only one I didn't get to meet, Harry, is um, and I'm still regretting it, Little Wayne. So um, Murray's daughter, Stacy Richmond, she represented Little Wayne, and I wasn't around at the time when um Little Wayne was a client. Was was this his gun case or what was she representing him for? I think it was the gun case. Maybe he got caught in a Boston city somewhere weird. And uh, she represented him for that. That's the only one I did not meet was Little Wayne. How did you first uh, start working with Murray? Oh, when I first came home, um, a good friend of mine used Murray as uh, an attorney. And um, uh, another friend, Tyrone, was Murray's prior uh, driver. And uh, he told me, Tyrone said, you know, Murray's looking for another driver. I got a position with the city. And I'm moving on. Um, I went and talked to Murray. We hung out for a couple of days and he made me his driver. I was like, great. He trusted me, gave me a brand new Acura. He had a brand new Benz. His daughter had a Porsche. And you know, Harry, I'm this broke guy, right? Just come home from prison. I'm broke, but I'm riding around in this brand new Acura and I'm looking really rich, right? But I'm broke as hell. And I'm making like $400 a week just to drive Murray around. But I feel good because he trusted me. Mary trusted me with his life. He trusted me with his wife life, his kids' life, because everybody that get in the cars, you know, is really under my control, right? And he trusted me with that. Uh, I knew all his homes. I knew his apartment. I knew everything. So the trust he showed me really made me feel good about myself. It humanized me. It was like somebody, a Jewish guy, is really trusting me. And, and that really started my, um, it built my confidence. It built my confidence in the entertainment industry. It built my confidence doing comedy. Um, I met D.L. Hewley, and I knew I was funny after I met D.L. Hewley. So I was like, you know, <laughs> I got to go try it. And I did it. And I did comedy for a couple of years. Um, according to my friends up here, I'm white boy funny. I'm not black. <laughs> Because in my routines, I didn't do a lot of cursings. I did like some hair jokes because I'm receding. My hair is receding. That's why I'm always bald. I did some prison jokes, but I didn't do the vulgar cursing and the profanity laced routine. So, you know, they was like, yo, your prism is good, but you don't curse. So it's boring, you know. When you met D.L. Hughley, did you realize I'm much funnier than this guy? So let me, let me oh, try to no, do 10 no, minutes no, on the stage. No, 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 D.L. is the king of comedy. He's one of the kings. You can't be funnier than him. But his yeah. style of comedy, right? He can talk to you and make you laugh. He can tell you a story you make you laugh. Or he could give you the one, two, three and make you laugh. Either way, his, 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 his whole performance was just totally different and and if you look at it, you know, you could go and talk about crackheads, dope fiends. You could talk about all the obvious stories that's going to make your friends laugh. Or you can make them think and laugh. And that's what D.L. Hewley do. He make you think and laugh. So I knew that I would never be a D.L. Hewley. could never do that. But I certainly could share some experiences that I thought was funny and humorous and then try to make a humorous situation out of it. And I did it. In the most part, you know, I performed the comic strip live, comedy cellar. And those white folks down there, they was laughing at my jokes, you know. Um, I came to Harlem and it was crickets, you know. <laughs> he was like, you don't curse enough, bro. You're not going to make it, you know. And, you know, you're listening to Richard Pryor. You're listening to Eddie Murphy. You listen to Bernie Mac, Martin Lawrence. All these guys got vanity in, they, in their routines, you know. So, but, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the experience. And more importantly, I enjoyed being able to do it. 
You know, nobody was judging me when I'm on that stage doing comedy or I'm on that stage doing freestyle or joining another group and rapping on their songs. Nobody is judging me. So I felt free on stage. And it's something when, you know, you said that the confidence that Murray gave you in trusting you with his family in driving, it kind of helped you, I guess, as you said, do stand up, do, do comedy, uh, rap, but also later on into your work running for office and then winning. It helped me become the man that I am. I, listen, let's not even put a little shade on this. Be honest with this thing. Murray's gave me confidence to be a whole man again, you know, and, you know, it's more than that. He taught me things about life that I would take for granted. Little things like how to cut a bread. So when you go to these fancy restaurants, like, for instance, City Hour, and they gave you this big round bread with cheese on the top and a knife. Mm-hmm. And I would butcher the bread. I would stab it with the knife and tear the bread apart. And Murray would teach you little things like, let the knife work for you. You don't work for the knife. So if you would take the knife and just rub it on the bread a little bit, it'll cut, you know, instead of stabbing it and pulling it apart. Little things like that he taught me, little small things about life. Uh, I, when I was a driver for about five, six years, um, for the first two years, I was showing up to his house in the morning to pick him up in shorts and sneakers. Uh, Murray would say, you know, you ever wonder why I never invite you out to eat? You ever wonder why I never take you out with us when we leave at nighttime? So one day I said, why? He said, because you're not fucking dressed. You're dressing like a bum. I don't say nothing because you're not coming to court with me. You're not coming into the house. You're not coming to the events. I'll let you go. Take the car. Come back. Pick me up. But it's more to me than just that. He said, put on a suit and see what happens. I put on a suit. I think it was my brother's suit. I, I, it was it was a little big, um, but I had a suit on nonetheless. There was a tie. I had the tie on, and I met him that morning. He was shocked. He said, "Hey, we're going to lunch this afternoon when I get out of court." And he had a case at One Hundred Center Street, and he said, "We're going to this restaurant called Forlini's." Now, Forlini's is this restaurant right behind One Hundred Center Street that all yeah. the judges. All the district attorneys and all the attorneys go and eat at. And we arrive to this restaurant and I freeze and I'm like scared. I'm cold and I'm sweating. And Murray knew it. And he said, listen, none of these people in this room know who you are. You don't have to feel that way. He's like, be free. They don't know you. They're not judging you right now. You could be you could be my apprentice. You can be an attorney. They don't know. Just be yourself. And that gave me the confidence to sit around people and, and, and want to talk to people. And um, I was like, well, if they're not being judgmental, then let's hang out. So, you know, he taught me, like, no, don't be shy. Own your past. Own your history. Run with it um, and, and just stay out of trouble. And so I did just that. And his daughter, Stacy, she said, hey, look, you've been with us about five, six years now. You've been on parole for a long time. You know you can get your right back. I said, huh? She said, yeah, you can get your rights back. Um, I was like, how do you do that? She's like, well, you got to file for a certificate of good conduct or a certificate of release. And I was like, I don't know anything about that. She said, well, let me do it for you. I'll pull in the application, just sign it, and you'll see. And she put in the application, I signed it, and she sent it off. And about a month or so later, I got this paper saying that all uh, bars of licensing and employment has been lift. I can do whatever I want. So I was like, is it that easy? She was like, yeah. She's like, fill out a voter's registration card. I did that. She's like, go vote. I did that. So the test of validity of the certificate, I went and I uh, 
applied for a correctional officer's job at Valhalla Corrections. My cousin Rob Gibbs was a correction officer there before he retired. And he said, hey, they have an application process going on at the job. $75. Come pay the $75. Take the exam. Um, I couldn't afford the $75. So I asked an ex-girlfriend of mine, Shatiko Cunningham. I said, Shatiko, you know, they are hiring at Valhalla. You know, do you, would you mind, you know, help paying for my um, examination? She was like, sure, I wouldn't mind. And plus, I'm taking the exam, too. So we go together. And we did just that. I got in. They let me in. I was excited. Uh, they gave me the examination paper. I excited. I took it, passed it, got a score of 83, between 83 and 87. Uh, my ex-girlfriend got a 79. And they called her first for the job before me. And I scored about five points higher than her. So I already knew that it was going to be some two-step dance in terms of me being a correction officer. Uh, so I wrote uh, Valhalla in Westchester County and asked, you know, what happened. I scored higher than most officers and was even told that I'm on the list. They gave me the, the uh, political excuse. Uh, you know, time passed. We didn't call you. You got to take the examination over again. This is what happens when we don't call the numbers or something happened or somebody came in before you. You know, this, this is typical. So take the uh, exam again and we'll see what happens. I was like, no, thank you. I was excited just for taking the exam, so, and passing. And someone then, you know, you spoke earlier about this idea of wanting to feel free. Um, well, two questions. How did it feel, I guess, getting that certificate of, of good conduct, um, knowing you could, you know, vote, you could fill that out? And then the second question, I guess, if you remember what you ate at Forlini's, only because people love a food fact, and Forlini's actually just closed last month, um, but I guess there's those two questions following up. I guess your first time at Forlini, where no one knew who you were, and, and it kind of, I guess, maybe showed that it didn't matter what your past was. Right. So, you know, I, I, I really didn't care about the certificate because I didn't know about it. I just knew that I wasn't going back to prison. I didn't care about getting my rights back. I just knew I wasn't going back to prison. But it's important to get your rights back because people look at your records, right? Yeah. So the certificate meant everything to me. But at the time, I didn't really understand the validity of it. I didn't understand how important it is to have that certificate. It was until things started happening in my life, like employment started opening up. I started working with several candidates. I ran for offers several times. This wasn't my first rodeo. So, you know, once I began to realize that the certificate does work, it does have validity to it. You know, I was I was honored to, to receive it because it gave me that green light to do whatever you want to do again. Um, everything except file for a firearm license. I don't think they would ever give me that. But everything else I can do, run for office, work anywhere else. I was never on a registry, so I'm fine in that department. Um, so that certificate meant everything. And that's why uh, I spent the last two months in my uh in my seat, uh, just doing this big certificate of good conduct uh, initiative, where we signed up about forty-three people already, including members of uh, members of several organizations, including the John Doe and Fortune Society. We signed up a lot of members because I want people to have this certificate. I want them to be able to get an opportunity and second chance and and turn their lives around, get a gainful employment and an apartment. So speaking of, of second chances, staying in the present for a minute, um, you know, I'm, I'm reading in Politico New York today about uh, Hiram Montserrat, who's trying once again to return to Albany 
uh, whereas you know he was expelled after pretty brutally beating his girlfriend and subsequently being convicted uh, for campaign finance fraud. And he's arguing that anyone who supports the state Queen Slate Act that would automatically clear all conviction records has no business saying that he shouldn't run for office. So, so naturally, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Harry, that's a good question, man. Let me take my time with this one, right? Because um, Murray Richmond taught me. Murray, one of the things Murray taught me, he said, Eddie, when the words are in your mouth, you're the master. When it leaves your mouth, you're the slave. You can't take it back. So make sure you understand what you're saying before you say it. And so let's talk about Montserrat, right? Um, not familiar with he was charged with, but I do. I am familiar with what the press said, right? The press said that he did brutally beat his girlfriend. Harry, let me tell you a story. Um, I was sitting in my office in Albany. My office is 532. I'm sitting in the office one day, and this young lady, she's about 20, 21 years old. She come knocks on my door and asks if she could come in and talk to me. I'm saying, great, my door is open, open door policy. Come in and say hello. She come in and she says, hey, you know, I know you're part of several initiatives one being rap, release agent prisoners. So is this a bill that wants to release agent prisoners when they get older? And, you know, and she heard that I was supportive of said bill. And she said, you know, in a better world, that would be a good thing to do. But she said, let me explain something to you, what happened to me when I was age three. She said, when I was three years old, this man brutally raped me. He brutally raped me for an hour and a half, destroyed my vagina, did this, did that, this, that, the third. And I'm only three years old. She said, now I'm 20, 21 years and 18 years. I'm still traumatized. And this guy that did this to me, he's an elder guy and he's in prison. Do you think he should be coming home? All that he's done to me at the age of three. So these little things, Harry, you have to really consider because these are victims, right? And victims have rights. Victims have a voice. And we certainly got to consider how they feel. Um, so I don't know how Montserrat's ex-wife or girlfriend feel about him running again. I don't know how severe it was, uh, the charge from him against her. I don't know what he did. So I can't comment on that. But she certainly should have a say in this. Uh, she's a victim of you know, his act. Uh, in terms of fraud, look. We know he's a lawmaker. We all legislators don't break the law. I, I don't look. I'm not doing anything wrong, Harry, because I know they are watching me. Right? I'm hot. Out of 159 assembly members, I'm the black sheep. Right? I'm that guy that actually came from prison, so they all watching me. Probably law enforcement too. I don't know, but I know it's two things I don't mess with, Harry. I don't mess with God, and I don't mess with the feds. You don't want to play with them boys. When they get their hands on you, they never let go. So I say this to say about Montserrat, you was a legislator for a long time. You know. You ain't get caught in the cookie jar. Come on. You can't come back and say, hey, I learned my lesson. I won't put my hand in the cookie jar anymore. Because people is not going to, you know. It's hard. It's hard, Harry. I don't know. I, I wouldn't want to be Montserrat, I tell you that. So, you know, Assemblyman, I wanted to ask, like, you know, reading your bio and knowing what you said, you did so much, all this great work in the community. Um, 
coat drives and, and, and other kind of resources for people, like you said, helping other uh, convicted felons get that certificate of good conduct, helping them out so they can move on with their lives. Um, you know, do you ever think like if circumstances have been different, if you hadn't been arrested, if you continued in the streets and selling drugs, do you think that you would have ever given that up to pursue the community work and, and, and politics? Um, and do, do you have any advice for kids today who are kind of on the streets or, or locked in their circumstances, which for a lot of people are, are largely out of their control? And, and what kind of advice would you give them? I would tell them, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't listen to your friends. Stay as far away from the streets as you can. Don't let idle time be your prison time because this, this is what happens when we have idle time. We get into trouble. Um, you know, if I was out there still hustling and never got arrested, chances are I would have never changed. I, I'll be frank with you. Prison changed me. It scared me. It made me want to do better. Um, if had I had I never got caught or had I never turned myself in, I probably still have been out there doing the same thing. You know, I, I told somebody in a different interview, I said, hey, look, I think if I would have beat the charge, I'd have felt it more. Though I probably came home and felt like I was untouchable. You know, Gotti, when he's beating his charges, he felt like, uh, can nobody touch me? But if I would have beat this charge, I probably came home feeling the same way. Like, look, I'm untouchable. I'm still selling drugs. And now I got a reputation of killing somebody and beating the charge. Y'all can't touch me. That would have been my narrative. That would have been my mindset. Uh, prison helped change my life. Um, it educated me. Uh, it made me aware. It made me... Uh, Prison made me the man I am. Um, it taught me not to come back. And it taught me to be responsible. So when I go to these prisons now, um, I, I talk to the different inmates and they have these terminologies out there. It's called boss shit. I'm doing boss shit. If you listen to these kids on the streets, they'll say that same terminology. I'm doing boss shit. So I go into the prisons and I usually ask some inmates, who's doing boss shit here? Now, boss shit in prison means I'm running the block or I'm running the phones at the prison or I'm running the TV. Can't nobody watch nothing until I watch what I want to watch. They call that boss shit. So I'm telling these inmates, you guys got to change your narratives because this is not boss shit. First of all, your name is not wall kill. You don't own the prison. Secondly, boss shit is walking into his prison with a felony record and this lapel on my shoulder, which lets me go in and out of any state prison in New York anytime I want unnoticed and, you know, with a felony record. That's boss shit. Come home, changing your life where, you know, you're now making the laws. You're not breaking them. You're making the law. You're literally making laws. And, you know, we have to change our narrative. So when I go talk to these inmates and I talk to the kids on the street, my, um, it's the same thing. Look, guys, we all can do better. We can all do better. When I first came home, I ate peanut butter and jelly and ramen noodle soups for 10 years. Um, I couldn't afford nothing else and I didn't want to afford anything else. I was satisfied with peanut butter and jelly and ramen noodles. And uh, it was this young man, the late uh, Reverend Timothy, Dr. F. Timothy Horn. He was a pastor at First Shaman Baptist Church over there on 116th Street in my district. And I remember seeing him outside one day and he was sweeping in front of the church. And I asked him, I said, oh, excuse me, sir, uh, I know you're not hiring at the church, but do you take volunteers? And Pastor Horn was like, well, yeah, you know, we always use help around the church. 
And I told him my story where I'm from, born and raised here in East Harlem, been to prison four and a half years, came home, trying to stay out of trouble, got a lot of time on my hands, need to do something constructive. He said, man, if you want to come and help clean the church, you can do just that. So after a week of cleaning the church and, you know, he came to me and he gave me keys to the church. And he said, I see that you like eating peanut butter and jelly and ramen noodle soup. Because this is what I would do. I would sweep and mop the church and stay there to six, seven o'clock every day at night until he leaves. And I would, you know, eat peanut butter and ramen noodle soup and watch TV at the mop. It kept me off the street. And he realized that I liked doing that. So instead of paying me, he would make sure I had enough supplies of peanut butter, jelly, and ramen noodle soups at the church. So when I finished cleaning up or whatever doing around the church, I would get me a peanut butter jelly sandwich or pop a noodle soup in the mic and watch some TV. That's how I stayed out of trouble and off the streets because I was inside of the church hiding from the bad. So, you know, I would explain to these kids, you know, to answer your question, don't do it. Find something better to do, something constructive to do. Come join one of my programs. I got a drone program going on now. Um, I'm doing some aeronautic things with kids. Come join my program, get off the street. That's what I would tell them. So, you know, it's really hard to tell 16-year-old man, boy, someone in the twenties who hasn't figured this out for themselves, anything and have them listen. Um, if I don't have this wrong, correct me if I do, like you were released in, in 91, which is like basically the peak of uh, New York city's bad old days. So-called. And I'd love to hear your perspective on the fight that's happening now in Albany, among other places, uh, as the crime numbers, the violent crime numbers have been going sharply in the wrong direction since 2019 about public safety, about uh, justice reforms and rolling them back. And I know you told um, city and states, Jeff Colden, a few years ago, you were concerned that justice reforms meant street guys no longer feared doing the time. Um, given your own experience and what you said about if you'd been released from Rikers, you know, you would have been immortal and, and, and gone right back. Like, what do you think that both reformers and law and order types, to put it crudely, don't get uh, in this fight happening, this political fight happening now? And what is it you'd like to uh, to, to get across to them as you're, you're doing this work now as a lawmaker? You know, I say God don't make mistakes, man. This is a unique time. I have a unique perspective. Um, you know, right now, like, as you said, you know, two, three, last two, three years, especially in the height of the pandemic, you know, we have, uh, unveiled a, a, a big mental crisis in our communities. Um, you know, we have a lot going on. And so I, I, I gotta say what they don't understand is, you know, and as lawmakers, you know, we, we. Common sense isn't so common anymore. Um, one of my colleagues who I really think have it, uh, David Weprin, I went through a lot of his bills. So what I did when I first got there, Harry, and I know some of my colleagues probably going to listen to this podcast. What I did when I first got there, I introduced myself to staff. I didn't introduce myself to members. I wanted to know the maintenance guy. I wanted to know who was in the index room. I wanted to know who was over there cleaning up, who was doing the supplies before I met the members. Because I was secretly reading all the bills that they had or were co-sponsoring. And David Weprin had one of the most progressive uh, 
prison initiative bills ever. Uh, if you look at his bills, they are all common sense bills. Like, for instance, David is introducing a bill that simply says, hey, when an individual come home from prison, we should give them their license or their, their uh, identification card when they are released. Um, when you come home from prison, you got to go through the whole DMV. You got to have a point system. You got to have your birth certificate, social security, amongst other things, a phone bill, address. So these guys do not have that when they come home. Most of them don't even know what their birth certificates or social securities are. David Weppert introduced a bill that simply says, who knows these guys better than the people who held them for the last couple of years? Let's get them some state identifications when they come home so they can find gainful employment and housing. Um, so, you know, one or two colleagues may get it. Other of us don't get it. You know, they're going, you know, through the hype, um, with criminal justice reform, bail reform, public safety. Uh, you know, it's a lot of hysteria out there, but nobody's using common sense on bail reform. I had a lot of issues with it. I had a lot of issues with what the governor was proposing, but, you know, some things we had to try and tweak. So I would send them different little messages and notice my good friend, Mayor Eric Adams, you know, same thing. He was offering the most progressive reform ever. But some things you have to look at on the other side and say, hey, look, I, I've been part of this movement. And, you know, I think that, you know, we should really rethink this. Um, I want to shout out Latrice Walker, uh, my assembly member, my colleague. Latrice is from Brooklyn and, you know, everything criminal justice runs through her. And, you know, we both sat down and realized that, hey, you know, a lot of our colleagues are not getting it. We have to really, really refine this thing and starting with the governor because um, she, she, she sent something about a 10 point plan in the budget that wasn't working for us. And we sat down and we said, hold up, hold up. You can't do this in the 12th hour and then expect us to say yes to these things that, you know, even I, a formerly conservative person, not agreeing with, you know, so. I'm praying that in the next two, three years, they'll get it. You know, um, I'm, I'm inspired that I'm inspiring them and helping them, you know, learn um, some things that they wouldn't learn in school. Um, Carl Hasey is the speaker. He told me, he said, hey, Ed, you have a unique perspective. And uh, 149 of the colleagues uh, do not know half the things that you know or been through half the things you've been through. And you have the floor to explain just that, you know, um, share some things where, you know, it would educate a lot of other assembly members in terms of, you know, these bills they're proposing. Are you concerned that, like, there are street guys right now who just are not fearful about doing the time, like rightly or wrongly? Oh, certainly. You know, um, you have your pocket of folks who are who are, who are not afraid. Um and, you know, we have to get back to where, you know, prison is a deterrent. We want people to be afraid of that word and especially going there. You know, back then when we were younger, we was like, we don't want to go to jail. You know, um, so, you know, it's, it's got to be a message out there to tell these young men and women, hey, look, it's got to be a better way. You spent 17 months on Rikers Island. Uh, do you think that the Fed should take receivership of, of the island, or what do you think should happen on Rikers Island? Hey, look, the Feds are the Feds, right? Them guys are efficient, 98% and better, right? So, look, I, I think whatever the Feds get their hands on, you know, it's going to turn positive. Um, 
Uh, you know, it needs a lot of oversight. Rikers Island needs a lot of oversight. You know, there's a lot of officers who are not coming into work. A lot of officers who just don't want to work anymore. It's no real incentive. So it's unsafe there. And, you know, if we have some federal control, I believe that, you know, it will be a major turnaround. You covered a lot here. Um, uh, thank you for taking the time. I hope you'll uh, come back on. We can uh, we can discuss yeah. more more about the present. But but our two closing things here: a serious one and a somewhat less serious one. Uh, first off, can, can you talk a bit about uh, the work you're doing now and and where you see places where our justice system needs or uh, reform or positive reforms are happening? And secondly. As somebody who's done this, like, are there any young rappers and or comedians these days who you really feel, and not so young, but I have to ask just because of the names, uh, what you think of Freddie Gibbs? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, so on the first question, uh, my buddy, District Attorney Braggs, um, then continuing what uh, other district attorneys done before him, uh, continued to support this gun buyback program in communities where he was set up an event and he would ask guys and girls to come in and bring in your pistols and we'll give you 150 or $200 and, you know, and, and I think it's a good gesture. I think it was a good idea, but when you look at it, these young folks, they get that $150 and they spend that in about an hour. You know, it'd be smoke up in the air in 20 minutes. And then after that, the money is gone and now they look for something else sinister to do. Um, I think it's a good gesture. It's a good program, but we could do something better. And so one of the initiatives that I'm offering, Harry, is that we have guns for jobs. You know, we give these young men and women who turn in these weapons a job or a career it would certainly keep them off the street and engage in positive activities. You know, the $150, $200, $200 go quick. You know, these guys are right back at it. Let's get them a job. Let's get them off the street. Let's get them a career. Let's help out. Um, there's jobs out here, and we can certainly do it. And so, so far, we got about 87 jobs secured, and we still count more. Um, Freddie Gibbs, as long as he keep the F and the R, we fine. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not mad at him. Just keep the F and the R. Subliman, thank thank you again for uh for taking the time. We appreciate you uh and uh hopefully we'll speak again. Thank you. Certainly. I hope you guys invite me back. It's been a, it's been a ball and I look forward to work with you guys again. FAQ FAQ.NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Artists, and Critics, online at thebrick.house. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and came to you this week from all across New York City. A special thank you to our guest, Assemblyman Eddie Gibbs, a.k.a. Good Buddy. Our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara, mixed and edited this episode. Be cool, be kind, and we'll see you next week.